0: Please turn with me then in your Bibles to our text this evening, which comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. So we'll be considering Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verses 1 to 10 this evening. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verses 1 to 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verses 1 to 10. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, How the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Well, we live in a world that places much of their trust on what can be seen. This is true, though, even amongst people who would identify themselves as as Christians, right? The world says, "Look at everything I have: good health, uh, a good job, wealth, wife, family, children." White picket fence. I must be doing something right. That God has rewarded me. Uh, you even see that with. Some people who would identify themselves as Christian uh, essentially write the prosperity gospel, those type of folks who would say, I have all that I have. Right? God is, has blessed me with all of these rich rewards because of the extent of my faith. Right? I have great faith and so I, I have garnered great reward. You also, though, have, have many people who would say, well, I don't have a great job that pays handsomely. Um, I, I don't have great health. I don't have much wealth. I don't have a family. Perhaps uh, God is angry with me. Uh, I've done something in my life that, that God is, is displeased with. And so this is what He has kind of paid me back with. But we need to see what Solomon is telling us is that we need to, to stop thinking in that manner. Right? We need to stop thinking that way. Uh, we need to uh, stop thinking with uh, a, a sort of uh, karma theology that we oftentimes see amongst people who would even identify themselves as Christians. Uh, who would say, uh, you know, such and such happened to this person uh, because of karma. Right? So, this person has done evil and so this is why they kind of get evil back in return. Right? This person has been doing so much good in their life, this is why good has been now returned to them. Uh, but, Couple problems with that. First, that's not that's not Christian, right? That's Hindu, that's Buddhist. But also that doesn't even align with, with Scripture, right? Scripture tells us that's not right. And it gives us example after example of why that's not right. Take for example yourselves. You were vile, wretched, sinners against God. And yet He gave you what you did not deserve. Right? He gave you the opposite of what it is you deserve. Or think about all of the, of the sinners in the world who, who rebel against God, reject God, and yet appear to have every temporal benefit anyone could ever want and enjoy. Well, has God given that to them because of their unbelief? As a reward for that? Well, obviously not. God has given that to them oftentimes to what? To allow themselves to to further trust in those things and to further harden their hearts against Almighty God. Right, But too often we fall into this trap. Some of you perhaps have thought that way in the past. Some of you perhaps think that way today. That when something hurtful befalls you, God must be mad at me. When something good happens to you, God must be uh, happy with me. Right? He must be rewarding me for this. In many ways, I think that this is uh, just kind of human nature to think that way, isn't it? I think that's, that's, for most of us, what we've experienced our whole lives, especially growing up as children. Uh, in your home, oftentimes you were probably rewarded by your parents when you did good. Right? When you did evil, you were punished. And so we associate now... Uh, whatever we perceive to be good as a reward, it must be a reward for something that we have done, and anything that we perceive as as harmful or hurtful or painful to ourselves, well, this must be a consequence or a punishment for something that I have done. This is the thought that Solomon captures in verse 1. But all this I laid to my heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know both are before him. Right? We ask ourselves, right? is what I'm experiencing because God hates me or loves me? Because He's happy with me or angry with me? Right? Is the reason that I have cancer because I've done something wrong and God is angry? Right? Is, is the reason why I got this you know, great raise at work because I've done something right and God is happy with me? Right? We oftentimes think we know why things happen. But Solomon says, hold on. Hold on for a second before you try to bring God down to you and force your thoughts upon Him for why things happen in your life the way that they do. Realize He is God, not man. That you are not going to know all of the mysteries of God's providence. God is not like man. His ways are not our ways. We can never forget the distance between creature and creator. Certainly there are many truths that God has informed us of in His Word, hasn't He? Right? There's so many things God has given us to be uh, encouraged and comforted by. There's so much revelation that He has given us to, to know so many things in this world, but not everything is for our knowing. Right? Sometimes we have to just do as the psalmist says in Psalm 46, verse 10, and, and be still and know that He is God. We shouldn't need to have every answer to feel secure that whatever is going on in our life, whether it be painful or enjoyable, right, that God through it all is on our side. That God is still for us no matter what it is. The righteous, the believer, feels secure, not because we have every answer to the mystery of God's providence, but because but because we know, like Solomon says, that that as believers, we are in the hand of God. We are in the hand of God. If that is always kept in mind, what in this world could ever trouble us? What safer place is there to be than in the hand of God? What more confidence do you need than to know that truth, that, that your life is in the hand of your Father? Isn't it true that we often let what we perceive, right, what we see, what we feel, to often guide us in what we believe and in, in, in not the Word of God. And when we do that, we oftentimes draw wrong conclusions, don't we? You know, I think to a text like John chapter 18, verse 30, when Jesus is brought before Pilate and He asks, well, what's the accusation that you're bringing? And the response was, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And so what was the prevailing opinion of that day? Well, if Jesus was arrested, and if Jesus was turned over to Pilate, then certainly he must have been doing something evil. right? Something worthy of this punishment. Right? Certainly the Jews who witnessed what was going on around them drew this conclusion. But what does Solomon point out? Look at verse 2. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns in oath. So what Solomon says is that the good that outwardly happens to the godly, we oftentimes see that same good happen to the ungodly. And that evil that happens to the ungodly, we oftentimes see happen right, to the godly. Right? Jesus was arrested, right, tried, made to suffer and executed. Although committed, He committed no sin. The prevailing thought would have been that if this happened to Jesus, then surely God was not with Him. Or surely God was mad at Him. Or surely God was, was angry with Him. Jesus must have done something wrong, and so this is why the Jews are looking and going, this man can't be the Messiah, because surely God would not put His anointed to death on the cross. But well, that's because they were, they were believing what they seen, what they, what they thought was true, that, that God would never cause His anointed to suffer such affliction. But what do we see on the cross that day? There was many men who suffered that same penalty for sin. For their, for their crimes and they died and, and one person, right, the God man suffered and he alone was the one who was innocent. And yet he suffered that same affliction in the sense that he was crucified along with criminals by the will of God. As a godly man, as a perfect man. And yet when he suffered that affliction, right, the the love of God never wavered for the son what that tells us also, though, is this. That although the same things may happen to the wicked and the godly, that they don't always happen for the same reason, right? That when the same thing happens to the wicked and the godly, that it doesn't mean that, that God's affections for both groups of people are the same in that same event. Right? When those things happen to the, to the godly and the wicked, it doesn't mean that they have the same ends attached to them. That God has has caused each one to suffer for different reasons, right? Perhaps one to uh, to to sanctify him, to refine him by fire. Perhaps the other, the same punishment, but but it's given to him to be a judgment against that person for sin. Yet this reality, though that that all alike seem to receive the the same thing, Solomon says is evil. Look at verse three. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and hardness is in their hearts while they live, and after they go to the dead. Solomon says this is proof right, that we live in a fallen world. Now, he's not making an indictment against God. He's not saying God's evil. But what he sees evil is the fact that that the ungodly don't receive maybe some, some greater consequence than the godly. Right? He thinks they, they ought to maybe suffer more or, or experience something worse than the godly. And so he sees that, that that's an evil to him. That, that no matter how much one transgresses God's law, no matter how much one refuses to worship God, no matter how much one you know, breaks their oath, the punishment that they suffer... Oftentimes is the same as the one who worships God, right? And the one who who keeps their oath. But brothers and sisters, I think a proper view of ourselves uh, would would quell uh, that belief that that we are less deserving of of any punishment that the ungodly would experience. Because as Solomon points out, that that all people in our natural state have hearts full of evil. That describes all of our hearts, doesn't it, at 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 least one time. That's the the heart history of all of humanity. Right? While we were apart from God, all of our actions were madness. That's what he says. The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. Why is that so? Well, because in that natural state, we don't have right knowledge. We don't have right-ordered affections. Uh, we don't have right desires. So yes, everything that the ungodly do is madness. It's folly. It's foolishness. I mean, look at this world today and the decisions and the choices that they make. It's, it's madness when you turn on the TV or you, you hear about things from other people or, or, or that you see in the news. right? It's madness. Perhaps the greatest madness is to reject right the Gospel and to reject Jesus Christ who is the only escape from eternal damnation. And yet people every single day right, hear the Gospel and, and reject it. And how many are going to persist that way all the way up until the end? But the only reason why you and I have not is because of the grace of God found in the Gospel He is the only reason that your life and mine doesn't end in utter ruin. He is the reason we've been brought out of darkness. He is the reason that we have a a living hope that Solomon speaks of in verse 4. There he says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. This is interesting though, isn't it? Because hasn't Solomon said in other places that, that death is better than living? And now all of a sudden he's saying, "Well, no, it's better to, to, to be a, a a living dog than a than a dead lion." Why? Well, the, it's the context of what he's addressing here in the ninth chapter, right? And what he's saying is, while while we live, there is hope. Right? While we live, there is hope. Once you're dead, all hope vanishes for you. Right? While you are uh, uh, living, you can know that you are a sinner. Right? You can find right Christ is the only means of escape. And you can lay hold to that living hope, but but once you die, all hope for the ungodly vanishes. You have it no more. That's why he he takes this despised animal like a dog, and he says to be a living despised dog is is better than to be a dead lion. Right? A lion is a dignified animal. Right? A lion is imposing and it's it's impressive, and yet it's better to be a despised living dog than a splendid dead lion. Why? Well, because no matter how beautiful, how impressive that animal is, once it dies, right, all of that goes away. It vanishes. It's no more. What well, does it doesn't matter how strong and beautiful he was? He's now dead in the ground. And in the same way, the person who, like that splendid lion, maybe is, is put on a platform here in our, in our world, and is looked upon and highly esteemed as someone who has, who has it all, yet apart from Christ, right, is like that splendid lion, right, who also when they die, all of that that they worked for, all of that that they held on to, that they gave their soul for, right, vanishes with them, right, it's no more, right, that's why it's better to be like that living despised dog, like some person in poverty who has nothing, who everyone looks upon as, as some lowly, ign- insignificant person. It's better to be that person and have a living hope than to be that other person who, who had it all, perhaps, on earth and yet dies apart from Christ. Because whatever that person received while on earth for their labor, that's their only reward. Right? Once they die, right, they, they receive the reward for what they did. Right? Whatever they had on earth... Once they die, perishes, it's no more. Their connection to this world is finished. And then what they receive, right? It's something far worse, right? Far greater than anyone could ever imagine, right? Eternal, conscious torment in hell forever. Now for those who, who live with hope though, here Solomon gives us a charge in light of that fact that we all though one day will die, won't we? And when we die, none of us are going to have a share in those things that occur under the sun. And so He gives us this charge and, and it's really three things that He tells us that we ought to do. and We'll call those uh, three W's. He says, enjoy wine, enjoy your wife, and enjoy your work. Right? That's what Solomon says here. Look at verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white; let not oil be lacking on your head. Solomon says the temporal things that God gives you are good. Enjoy them. Now, yes, oftentimes when we talk about wine, we have to, you know we have to preface it. There are perhaps specific people. Um, Depending on uh, whatever the case may be, that that maybe you stay away from wine, right? Uh, because you don't want to uh, abuse it. Um, but what Solomon here is speaking of, he's speaking about believers who want to exercise a sanctified enjoyment of these things, right? It's believers who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, who who have been given the ability to enjoy those things properly. Right, that's here what Solomon is, is promoting, right, not drunkenness, but a sanctified drinking of the riches of this earth that God has given to his people in food and, and drink. And we can enjoy them right, because God approves of it. Right? God approves of it. Right, he is the one who provided it. And so we can enjoy all those good things that He has given to us, but we are to enjoy them in a thankful manner, aren't we? Right? We are to do it with joy. That's what verse eight really is addressing. When he says let your garments always be white let not oil be lacking on your head uh white garments fragrant ointment were were worn and applied on festive occasions right that's what you'd do you you dress up in your nice white clothes and you you'd put uh ointment or you know cologne or perfume on and you'd go out a, for a festive occasion I mean today if we go to a celebration Right, do you go to a celebration uh, angry and gloomy? Well, of course not. Right? You're joyous, you're smiling, you're you're thankful. Isn't it sad when you see Christians who look so unhappy? Right, we've probably all been to, to churches where there's those people in the church that you're never sure if you ought to approach them or not. Right? Because they always have this, this frown or this this scowl right on their face. Charles Bridges in his Geneva Bible commentary series says this, they are this way not because they have too much religion, but because they have too little religion. Right? And he's, that's so right. It's so true. Right? One who has a robust understanding of God's work of salvation in your life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ with whom you gather. You cannot be that way. One who has much religion, who is closely joined and knitted with Christ, cannot help but to express that joy amongst others in word and in deed. We also are told to enjoy our wife. Look at verse 9. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all your days um All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun, the believer's wife is a is a sweet gift from god isn 't she right she 's our companion, a friend, a help, someone to exercise, as Paul says in first Corinthians chapter seven, your conjugal rights with right the author to the Hebrews echoes this very same sentiment and Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. See what Solomon is pointing out to us here is, is marriage isn't made for heaven. Marriage is made for earth. And so while you are married, uh, enjoy one another, right? Enjoy your time together. Because that, that marriage relationship is a kindness, right? It's a blessing from God to man, but one that's not going to continue forever. And then the final exhortation is to enjoy your work while we have it. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is a rebuke, in a sense, towards the lazy. He says, do your work with all your might. How many of us say, there's so much I have to do. I'll do it tomorrow, though. You know, you, you keep pushing it off more and more. But remember, you only have one life to live. You only have one life. You don't want to look back on the end of your days when you physically can't do anything anymore. You're at the end of, end of your life and you say, Boy, I wish I would, have, I would have done so much more with my life. You don't want to do that. You don't want to look back and say, what a poor steward with my time I was. You know. Oh, how did I dishonor God right by not using my time wisely? Right? I, I didn't redeem the time that God had given to me. You don't want to look back at your life and say that. Right? Work is your duty. Once you die, your vocation that God has given you here on earth is is no more. There's no more opportunity to go back and, and finish everything that you wanted to do. The most important work the believer has to do is to, as Paul says, work out our fear and work out our salvation in fear and trembling. How many Christians are going to approach, you know, the later stages of their life, uh, knowing that they're about to go to the grave, saying, "I wasted my Christian life away." And how many people on their deathbed say something like that? There was so much I wanted to to study. So much I wanted to learn. So much I wanted to know. So so much I wanted to, to grow. I wanted a deep, sweet, intimate connection with God, and and I wanted so badly to be more conformed to Christ. I wanted so badly to be to be sanctified. Far more than I was. There were all these opportunities God gave me that that I wanted to do, that I wanted to to glorify and honor His name in doing, and yet. All of the time that He gave me, I, I wasted it away. Right? Once in the grave, brothers and sisters, all your opportunities are over. They are gone. Now, what do we recognize about at least two of these W's though? A wife, or marriage, and, and work. They were given before the fall. Right? They were given before the fall. But the fall corrupted them. And so we see, though, that only in Christ do we get to enjoy them in the manner in which they were meant to be enjoyed from creation. Only in Christ do we receive that privilege again. Not worshipping the gift as this world does. They they worship their their spouse. They worship their jobs. They worship their belongings. We don't worship the gift. We worship God who is the, the great gift giver. Ultimately, then, we ought to see that this is This is Solomon's wake-up call to all of us. He shouts, wake up everybody. Don't spend your time worrying about death. Don't spend your life worrying about why things are the way they are, why the the ungodly receive the same things you do. Don't worry about all the vanity under the sun. Instead, enjoy life. Enjoy all of the wonderful privileges that God has given to you. And you are able to do so because unlike this world, you have a hope that's anchored in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. That our hope is anchored in the fact that, that in Christ our sins have been forgiven. That in Christ we are heirs of everlasting life. And we know now that, that our lives are in the hands of God Himself. And God wants us to do His will. Which He tells us is, is not wrapped up in a life of, of worry and fright and, and uncertainty. But it's a life trusting in Him. It's a life glorifying Him and rightly serving Him and enjoying the good gifts He gives to all of His people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Your Word is such an encouragement to us, but also a rebuke oftentimes. Uh, But we thank You for both. We thank You for the the consolation Your Your Word brings to our hearts. And we thank You for the, the rebuke that You give us. Uh, the call to, to wake up and to, and to serve You in the manner in which You have called us to, uh, to enjoy the, the good gifts that You have given, but to enjoy them properly in Christ in a thankful manner with our hearts directed towards God. Um, we thank You, O Heavenly Father, for Christ our Savior, for we recognize that it's only in Him that we have the, the ability to enjoy these good gifts in a manner that that honors You and is pleasing to You. We pray, Lord, that You would help us every day to be a thankful saints, that you, we would not allow a day to go by in which we do not give You thanks and praise for everything that we have. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to be then good stewards with our time, to not be slothful or lazy, uh, but to serve You, recognizing that, that uh, we are like a mist. Right, One day we are here and the next day we are gone. And so, Lord, we pray that You would impress it upon our hearts the the, the need to to do all that can be done uh, in Your strength in the time that we have. And so, Lord, we come before You asking all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.